Welcome back to episode 3, Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. So today I'll just give you a bit of an update about what I've been up to this week and a few interesting bits in the news at the moment. So this week has been my final full week with the Bonneville T120. I've actually done about 400 miles on it this week. It goes back on Monday, but the very next day, on Tuesday morning, I go and pick up a real competitor of the T120, the BMW R9T. Now, usually I'm lucky enough where the motorcycle companies are kind enough to drop off the motorbikes straight to my door so I don't have to do anything. It's usually 9 a.m., van driver, gives me a ring and I just run downstairs, pick it up. Could not be easier, but for the BMW, I actually do have to drive over. I think it must be their their UK operations center. I have to drive over. So I have to go with Monica, pick up the R9T and then drive back. And I think it's about an hour and a half or so. So I'll have to do that on Tuesday morning. But what a brilliant opportunity to compare pretty much BMW's flagship modern classic to Triumph's flagship modern classic. And a lot of people say that the R9T is pretty much the ultimate, but probably an equal amount say exactly the same for the T120. And I'm going to be as impartial as possible to try and compare these because I'm genuinely interested and I have no preconceived ideas about how the the R9T is at all. I just cannot wait to ride my first ever BMW and see what it's like. And that got me thinking a bit because there's a little bit of a hole, an obvious hole in the types of bikes that I've been riding, and that is Japanese bikes. I just haven't tested any Japanese bikes. You've got, for example, the Kawasaki W800. Now this, this is a bike that looks so similar to the Bonneville, the untrained eye wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And a couple of weeks ago when I was getting my Bonneville repaired, the mechanic actually said, have you ever tried the W800? And I said I hadn't tried it. And he said, you really should because it's very similar to the Bonneville, but if anything, it's slightly nicer to ride so I was really curious to test it out but I found out this week that the W800 is being discontinued this year and that's because of Euro 5. I did say last week in the podcast a few of the bikes like the Harley-Davidson Sportster they're disappearing because of Euro 5 emissions regulations and the Kawasaki W800 that's going that will no longer be being sold in the EU, in Europe. And funnily enough, coincidentally, I was also chatting away to Honda and they told me that the CB1100s, they're also going and that's Honda's really good looking. It's a handsome, big, modern classic, circular front headlight motorbike, 1100cc, really nice looking machine that I was I was really keen to ride, but they are being discontinued as well. So no CB1100s. So I went on to the Honda website just to have a look to see what their current lineup's like. Forget about the 1100s. They're still on the website, but they're going now. They're being discontinued. Honda don't have any modern classic motorbikes. If you want a modern classic motorbike, and they've built some great looking bikes in the past, 
you can't go to Honda because they don't have any. That really, really surprised me. I mean, they've got the Cub, the little 125cc bike, and I'm a huge fan of that. I recently did a poll on it on Instagram to see who liked it. It's the small 125. It's been around over 50 years. looks brilliant. Actually, 73% of people, of bikers, said that they think it's a cool bike, and I'm a huge fan. And they've also got, of course, the monkey bike, which is a brilliant well it's a modern classic it's a retro it looks great but they don't have any big 600 cc modern classics for sale and i found that absolutely amazing kawasaki's losing the w800 but they still have i think they're the z900 rs they've got a couple of good looking modern classics and I thought I'd look at Suzuki as well, but Suzuki, I think they've got the SV600 Retro, I can't remember the exact name, but even they don't have many. So actually, funnily enough, even though the modern classic scene is big, it's not a huge amount of manufacturers that have an extensive range, for example, like Triumph do. So that's a shame. That's two bikes that I really had on my list that I wanted to test that I, I will, well, never know i may never have a chance to ride them and that's a shame especially the cb 1100 with that engine but but never mind i was out actually moving on to to riding modes because i was out on the t120 for a ride midweek and the first few drops of rain started so i left the house and i went on a ride and it was bone dry and then a few drops of rain came along and i immediately thought oh god I, I have to change I have to put it from road mode into rain mode so desperately flip it over to rain mode and carry on riding happily but it kind of got me thinking you know this is an 80 horsepower bike and I'm starting to freak out at the first sign of any kind of moisture in the air or the first drop of rain I used to own a Triumph Speed Triple which was 130 horsepower 2007 model no rider aids not even any abs and i'd happily ride that and i rode it year round i'd commute on it torrential rain i toured europe 130 horsepower no riding modes never crossed my mind you just ride it more safely when it's wet but here i am on a hundred or no on an 80 horsepower bike freaking out because it's there's one drop of rain thinking if I don't change to right to rain mode as soon as possible then I'll immediately slide and fall off the bike and it brings me back again to when I had the scrambler XC the 1200 scrambler XC from Triumph and I got the bike and it came with dual sport tires and it also came with an off-road mode so dual sport tires which of course it's a bit of jack of all trades master of none so they're okay off-road and they're okay on road but they're not brilliant on either they have to cross all bases so i completely understand it and if i had a scrambler i'd probably spec it with dual sport tires so i get it a hundred percent but i remember as soon as i got the the 1200 xc i thought i was going to be an off-road riding god i thought i'd be able to just aim for an off-road track straight off the road go off-roading and because it's got an off-road mode I'd be able to get anywhere but as soon as I went off-road I hit a muddy patch not even an incline but a muddy patch I got stuck and I couldn't get out and all the riding mode does is it just stops you spinning so I'd be revving it up and nothing would happen with the wheel 
so sometimes these riding modes you know they almost give you a full sense of security i was on the 1200xc again early january and i was coming around a bend it was a road coming around a road and in the middle of the road there was a muddy patch but i was in what was i in i was in rain mode even though it wasn't raining but I, kn I knew it was cold and there was a muddy patch in the middle of the road and I was riding around and I did the worst tank slapper over this muddy patch that I've ever done. I was completely out of control. The rear wheel was just slapping from left to right and only through pure luck was I able to stay on the bike. But I was riding that bike completely confidently because I thought, oh, I've put it into rain mode. So nothing's going to happen the back wheel isn't going to spin the electronics on the bike will completely keep me in check and i've got nothing to worry about but that isn't the case i learned that with the 1200 xc these riding modes they may i guess what they do is dial back the power but they don't make you invincible you're still going to spin they're not going to really help you i don't think they're going to help you much at all with the off-road mode they'll probably rain back the power from the off-road mode but they're not going to help you that much whereas the royal enfield himalayan with no riding modes with all the power available all the time that that was much easier to ride off mode and you don't get in a position where the tires don't want to spin because that they're engaging the traction control so with the himalayan you can spin the tires to get yourself out of situations and you're not worried about the engine dialing back the power to stop you spinning so more and more bikes now are having riding modes and it's it's the norm now but it's just funny looking back i was happily riding a 130 horsepower bike with none of that and the royal enfield interceptor i love the simplicity of it no riding modes and i never once thought damn i wish i had a a track mode or a rain mode or a gravel mode or something like that i just I don't know if they're needed, the riding modes. I'd be curious on your thoughts. Send me an email to dob.bs at outlook.com if you think I'm talking complete nonsense about these riding modes. I'd be really curious if people agree with me or they just think I'm totally, totally wrong. It's just there's a happy balance with everything. And you could bring the argument back to, well, is the horsepower too much? Is the Royal Enfield Interceptor with 45 horsepower where you don't need all these riding modes? Is that actually the best bike? Because what's the point of having a bike with so much horsepower if you just have to rein back the power all the time? Let me know your thoughts. And moving on now to rider safety because in the news, protective airbag trousers to be on sale soon. So at the moment you can buy an airbag jacket. And I do remember talking to one motorcycle company who were curious for me to do a, a little project with, with an airbag jacket, but it just, I don't know why, it's just not my thing. I just, it's just hooking yourself up, jumping on the bike. You've got an airbag jacket on, you have to hook that up to the bike, and then you've got the airbag trousers on, you've got to hook those up to the bike as well. It's, you know, it's it's like you're just, you're wired into the bike. So you've got two, two wires on, one from the trousers, one from the jacket, and then if you come off the bike, the yank that you create pulls the wire off the bike and then that deploys the airbag, and that's pretty much how it works. So it's clever, of course, it is, but 
I just don't know if I want to be hooking myself up with loads of wires to the bike every time I go on a ride. And then you could have the argument, no, but you won't do it if you just, if you're going to the coffee shop, that's fine. But what about if you go touring? I just, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be riding around with a whole load of airbags attached to me. I like the feeling of just jumping on the bike, going to enjoy a nice ride and then just jumping off and carrying on with my life, not having to wear some textile gear that has airbags attached and wires coming out of you. I don't know. I don't know. But these are about to come on sale soon. They're really impressive. I, I had a read about them and they'll give you brilliant protection from broken bones. So the second you come off your bike, the wire detaches from the bike and your trousers turn into an airbag effectively. So they will do a brilliant job. And the person that created them, created them from experience. He came off, broke a few a few bones in his leg and he's created these. So I'm sure it's a brilliant product, but I just don't know. Uh, is it going too far now? You know, there's, there's some joy in being able to wear cool looking biking gear that's lifestyle gear on and off the bike. And that's what I love about it. So I'm not sure about that. But in other news, still safety related, Spain. Spain are looking to make motorcycle glove use mandatory. And that would follow in France's footsteps. I think France have one of the strictest kind of sets of regulation for biker safety. And please do let me know any French listeners. I think I've got a few, so let me know. In France, I think, I think it's the law that you have to wear a high-vis jacket or at least a high-vis strap across your jacket if you're riding. Let me know if that's the case. I know that you legally have to wear motorcycle gloves in France, but let me know if the high-vis is the case. But either way, Spain are looking to make motorcycle glove use mandatory. And I don't know what it's like in other countries, but here, in the UK at least, all you have to do is wear a helmet. You can be going at 70 miles an hour and flip-flops and a, a vest on your Kawasaki Ninja 1000 if you want to. Uh, well, you do get people doing it. I see it in summer. But yeah, it's very, very lax in that respect, UK rider safety. But I guess, of course, that means that doesn't mean that you have to be on a motorbike. Even if you're on a, a Vespa or a scooter, little Piaggio, you still have to wear these protective gloves. So that's quite interesting, and that would be a bit of a change. It will probably happen here in the UK eventually, because I guess you could look at it and think, it's almost pretty amazing, actually, that we can just ride around in T-shirt with no gloves here. So I'll be curious if that takes on over here in the UK. And something I touched upon last week, and it's not that I'm a massive electric bike fan. It just seems to be a lot in the news at the moment, because of course you've got the Harley Davidson live wire that's now established. And I just cannot wait. I just signed the insurance document with, with Harley Davidson, which is always a bit of a scary thing because this bike arrives, the Harley Davidson live wire. I think it's on, I think the 4th of April. And it's always scary when you have to sign these forms that the motorcycle companies give you because it looks like you're signing to say if you crash it, you'll be liable for it. And I always just hope that that isn't the case. 
but I don't want to turn down the opportunity to ride these bikes. So basically, whatever they send me paperwork-wise, I just blindly sign it because I'm so desperate to try the bikes. So that arrives, the Harley-Davidson Livewire. And excitingly, the new Triumph TE1, that has just... It's not been announced as, as an official bike. I think this is definitely coming out, but... They're moving forward with this Triumph's electric bike. And I had a read about this, so at least I have a tiny bit of knowledge about this bike before doing the podcast. Okay, here we go. Triumph TE1. It will weigh in just over 220 kilos, so that's fine. And to give you an idea, it looks a little bit like the new Speed Triple 1200, Triumph's new Speed Triple 1200. It weigh a little over 220 kilos, and that's not ridiculous, that's fine. It will produce 170 horsepower. I mean, that is just absolutely ridiculous horsepower, 174. Anything over 80 is just excess. I do love excess, but 174, that is absolutely massive. And it will travel around 120 miles on a tank before you need to plug it in. And that's pretty much bang on every single motorbike I've ever had. So that is brilliant. But here is the interesting thing. It'll be capable of a 0-80% to charge. Not in 4 hours or 6 hours that I was thinking. But 0-80% to charge in 20 minutes. 20 minutes. That's how far tech is starting to progress that's the the biggest eye-opening thing that i've heard within all of this electric news whether it's cars or bikes for a long time and that's a game changer because that means you can go into a petrol station grab a coffee sit down for a chat and then pop off and 80 percent done in 20 minutes that's incredible if that happens I guess it's easy to say it when you've got a prototype or some plans, but if that does actually happen, well, that is an absolute game changer. But Triumph has said the bike will come onto the market, and I'm quoting here, when we can get it down to a price that we think people are willing to pay. So battery prices are coming down all the time, but in reality... uh, how long will that be? What's a reasonable price? I mean, the current speed triple 1200, I think that's about 15k. That's an expensive bike. Maybe 18k or below for an electric one is is reasonable. Maybe something like that. But that's that's a real game changer if that happens. But you've got you've got the Triumph, the T1, whatever we call it, prototype initial plans, and of course you've got the live wire. And they're brilliant, you know, they're brilliant looking bikes. They look cool, but is anyone else thinking, where's the modern classic? You know, it's brilliant. These bikes look great, but I don't want, if I buy an electric bike, for me personally, I'd love, I'd love a modern classic. Something, it doesn't need to look exactly like the petrol ones, the petrol bikes, but I want to see something with a nod to the heritage. For me personally, it's for the same reason as I don't buy the sports bikes. You know, they're cool. I understand why people like them, but I don't want a bike that looks like a spaceship. I'm a sucker for the heritage. The modern classic stuff, I just, I'm the biggest sucker for that stuff. So if, if they can just make a bike, for example, with, 
what can I compare it to in car terms? With the Honda. The Honda, for example, I've forgotten the name. That Honda car, the electric car that they've just brought out, I've only ever seen one in my life, but that looks absolutely brilliant. You know, why, why can't they make one of those? I really hope they do. For Harley Davidson as well, the live wire is great, but God, even more than the live wire, I would love to see a street bob. A Superglide, a Softail Deluxe, one of these real classic heritage bikes, but electrified. That would be massively, massively exciting. So these are brilliant first steps, but I, I just hope, I just hope that when the electric market fully arrives, that, you know, we still get that modern classic scene because there's no reason why it can't happen. I'm sure it will happen. I can't wait to see where it goes, but I, I would really, really get ridiculously excited to see some of that. And moving on, actually carrying on with modern classics, Norton, Norton Motorcycles, a British motorbiking company with a gigantic amount of history. They are moving their headquarters to a all new super high-tech location in the UK and if you didn't know Norton got into just a gigantic amount of trouble they were so close to bankruptcy but in April 2020 TVS Motor Company acquired Norton Motorcycles otherwise absolutely no question they would have gone bankrupt I think Norton's owner got in some trouble for some financial stuff so that was almost the end of, a com of the company. But they're back. They're investing into this huge new building, this huge new office. They're investing into staff. They're investing into new bikes. They've, I think they've trademarked a few names already. The Norton Electra, the Norton Fastback, the Navigator, the Nomad, the Ranger, the Combat. I love Norton's name. So... If things go well, we're going to start seeing Norton's back. And the good news is that this company, TVS, and it's an Indian company, I think, they will honour customers' orders that were taken before TVS acquired Norton. So every customer who thought they were going to lose their deposits for the Nortons, which was a real concern for a lot of customers, they're all being honoured by TVS, which is absolutely incredible of them so first things first tvs are going to finish off and fulfill all of the orders the back orders that they've got for for the bikes from probably 2019 2020 and then they'll move on to these new models but things are moving forward brilliantly and i think it's a great thing because for some reason in britain we're not very good at running companies we usually need a foreign investor to come in you know we've got some brilliant brands Jaguar owned by Tata an Indian company Rolls-Royce British owned by BMW Bentley great British mark VW own it Land Rover Tata own it Mini BMW own it Triumph Motorcycles privately owned doesn't really matter who owns it so long as someone's nice enough to come along and save it but that's another brilliant British mark in the biking scene back so that's amazing because of course Triumph that they were I think either on the verge of or they went completely bankrupt and they were only saved back in 1983 by John I think it's John Bloor 
So maybe, you never know, Norton could be another success story. They've got all of the history, proper modern classic styling they usually go for. So there's no reason if they get the pricing right that that couldn't do really well under good management. Bike prices. I was having a little chat on Instagram with, with someone and this made me laugh because I, I did a little survey on Instagram about the Honda Cub to see who thought this little 125cc scooter from Honda was cool because in my eyes it is off the scale cool. So I did a little, a little poll because Monica said it, it looks ridiculous and don't even do the poll. But anyway, 73% of people said this bike looks cool. And I had someone that messaged me afterwards and said that years ago, he bought a Honda Cub for £15 and he just used it as almost like a dirt bike and he'd just ride it off-road and he crashed it into a hedge and after a bit of fun he ended up just chucking it in a skip and walking off and he said if I knew what the prices for Honda Cubs would be now there's absolutely no way I would have done that so I went on to Auto Trader and I had a look and this is amazing because he bought his for £15 he ragged it around some fields and crashed it into a hedge. And I've always liked the Honda Cubs. And I remember looking for them probably about seven, six years ago, seven years ago, 500 pounds. And you can take your pick of them on Auto Trader. And I went on now after our chat to have a look on Auto Trader. The cheapest Honda Cub on Auto Trader anywhere in the UK, the cheapest one with 27,000 miles on the clock, two and a half thousand pounds. Only three years ago, there were one and a half K for the cheapest. Now two and a half thousand for the cheapest. The next cheapest with more sensible mileage, 3,000 pounds. So that got me thinking, oh, okay, how much money could I have made if I'd have kept all of my bikes that I've owned, how much have I lost? Because I'm the type of person that when I want to sell a bike or a car, I get so overexcited. I put it onto Auto Trader or eBay, and this has happened just with every vehicle I've ever owned. I put it onto eBay or Auto Trader. If no one contacts me in the first day, I drop the price. I drop the price by 10%. If by three days, no one's contacted me, the price is dropping beyond limits. You wouldn't believe it. For example, I could, I could name any one of a number of bikes, but in that fact, I think I told you last time about my Suzuki Bandit that I gave away for about £100, but I had a Triumph Speed Triple. Put it up for sale for £4,200. No one contacted me for about four days. So I reduced the price to three and a half thousand. No one contacted me for another three days, reduced the price to three thousand pounds. Someone finally called me and said, I'll take it for three thousand. And then we were having a chat and he ended up saying, okay, two thousand eight hundred pounds. So I said, great, come and get it. So I dropped the price by one thousand four hundred pounds in a week because I'm so desperate to sell because I want the next bike so badly. So so that's my usual selling technique. But I thought I'd go online and check. So my Bonneville, my Bonneville that I bought for £3,650, 
two years ago, almost to the day, actually, it really is almost to the day I bought that. Two years ago, I paid 3650 cheapest Bonneville on Auto Trader at the moment, £4,200. It's so interesting. I had a Suzuki RF600, and that's a bike I paid £790 for, and then I sold it for £280. Another great deal from me. But I checked, and this Suzuki RF600, if you're not familiar with it, which you probably aren't, it was never popular, it's not the coolest bike in the world. In fact, when I used to get it serviced, my mechanic said that it's it's an ugly bike. So a lot of people don't like it. But the cheapest, the cheapest Suzuki R600, one and a half thousand pounds. Another dream bike of mine when I first passed, you could pick them up for 1,000 pounds, 1,200. GSXR 600 from about the year 2000. I mean, it was just... It was just three years ago. These were one and a half K, 2,800 for the cheapest. 2,800 pounds for the cheapest 2,000 year GSXR 600. So interesting with bike prices at the moment. I don't know if it's just the UK. Again, genuinely, I want to hear. What's it like in Europe, Australia, US, the rest of the world with bike prices? Is the UK unusually expensive for bike prices i know i know we don't have a huge amount of of bikers probably compared to you know the us or or the italians for example you only need to go onto instagram and see for example i think triumph's uk instagram account has 55000 followers i think the italian one has closer to 90000 even though it's a british mark so it kind of shows you that you know, because our weather isn't brilliant here, we probably don't have the biggest biker community in the UK, although it is a very strong one. It may not be the biggest. And maybe that the exclusivity of bikes, because there aren't as many, maybe that pushes the prices up. But I'm really curious. The prices I've quoted here for UK prices, is that normal in other countries? Let me know. dob.bs at outlook.com. Very curious about that. And for the final part of the podcast, question time. So I've got two questions this week. The first one is, I had quite a few actually for this one, quite a few questions about a recent YouTube video that I've done. And that's where I was talking about a specific pair of triple A rated jeans. And I know that there are a few of these triple A rated jeans on the market now. And just to give you an idea, Triple A, CE approved, triple A rated is the highest rating that motorcycle jeans, trousers can get. It's the very best. And I said in the video that having a pair of triple A rated, CE approved, triple A rated motorcycle jeans now means that I don't have to wear motorcycle leather trousers it removes that need so it's brilliant because of course jeans are much more comfortable than leather trousers and i don't need to look like a power ranger every time i go into a coffee shop which is great but a few people they they weren't sure they said is, is it really the case now that these motorcycle jeans are so good that they can be as safe as leathers is that really the case so I thought I'd do a bit of research 
And to the very best of my knowledge, and I welcome any messages or emails, dob.bs at outlook.com. Send me an email. Let me know if I'm talking rubbish or if you agree with me. But this is, from the information I've found to the best of my knowledge, this CE rating for motorcycle trousers, it's regardless of whether it's leathers or denims. It's a, it's a safety rating purely based on the safety of the trousers. So it covers leathers, denims, textiles, absolutely everything. So a CE AAA rated pair of motorcycle jeans will be exactly as safe as a AAA rated pair of motorcycle leather trousers. And I actually had a good search online. You can get single A rated motorcycle leather trousers, even with the knee and hip armor, single A rated. So, of course, a triple A rated pair of motorcycle denim jeans will be significantly safer than a single A rated pair of motorcycle leather jeans or leather trousers. So, as far as I can see, yes. If it's AAA rated, the very highest rating motorcycle jeans, yes, they should in theory be just as safe as the motorcycle leathers. And from what I can see, the AA rated motorcycle trousers and the AAA rated ones, they are the really, the really impressively safe ones, I think. Even, even though it's not the absolute highest, the AA rated ones are still very good as well from what I can see. But please, I welcome any comments or emails about the subject. And the final question, T120, Triumph Bonneville, T120. Is it now your dream bike? Yes, yeah, I think it is. It's lived up to all expectations. The difference in, do you know what, for me, the interesting thing is, I don't know, everyone's different, and that's why it's so brilliant with so many different motorbikes. But I still look back, just incredibly fondly at the Interceptor, the 45 horsepower Royal Enfield Interceptor, the simplicity, the fact you can use all the power all the time, brilliant. The Triumph Street Twin 900cc 65 horsepower engine, for me that's the most perfectly balanced motorbike with the perfect amount of horsepower for real riding roads and just real life, you can use it all the time, you get the feeling of being on the edge, but pushing up to the 80 horsepower engine for the the Bonneville T120, it is excess. It's more horsepower than you need. So you don't get the feeling of being on the edge quite as much because it's just, it is much more powerful. So in a way, I almost, you know, I look back at the lower horsepower bikes and I, you know, you can remember like, oh, you know, being on the edge, you know, that's really good. You've got to really rag it to get the most out of it. And I like that feeling of riding on the edge, which you do lose a bit with the T120. It's more civilized. Uh, but yeah, it probably still is my dream bike, the T120. I absolutely love it. It's very possibly my favorite bike I've ever ridden. Uh, so is it my dream bike? Yes. And that is it. That wraps it up. Usually I like to try and keep this to about half an hour. Maybe I've gone a bit over, but thank you so much for bearing with me. Do please subscribe to the podcast. Follow me on Instagram, dob.bs. And thank you so much for listening. I'll see you soon.